they want to see the numbers, they want to see the proof. So if you can track back revenue attribution to your SQLs or your MQLs, there's no hesitation in absolutely accepting what we're doing is very real. B2B has the potential to be electrifying. But the industry is paralysed by a culture of conservatism. Scared stiff in a straitjacket of rational ideas. It's time for change. It's time to make B2B marketing visceral. Join us as we uncover and explore the truth with leading B2B marketers. This is B2B marketing, the provocative truth. Hello and welcome to B2B Marketing, The Provocative Truth. I'm Benedict and today I'm joined by Andrea Leinen, uh, who is Global CMO of Currency Fair and Zai. Andrea, very, very warm welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be here, Ben. Perfect. Well, um, I've obviously just introduced your name and I've given you a job title, but I think that probably doesn't really um, give you uh, an adequate and sort of consummate introduction that you, you probably deserve. Um, so... If I could ask you maybe just to say a few words about yourself, um, your background, and some of the so key motivations that you have in marketing for the audience. Sure. Um, so I actually didn't originally come up the marketing track. I was um, a finance and accounting major. Um, and after I'd finished university, I moved over to the Middle East where um, I just serendipitously um, fell into marketing. Um, and uh, lo and behold, it turned out that it was my passion all along. Um, so, but definitely throughout my career, I have found ways to try and leverage that finance and accounting um, piece. Um, so, I'm always very much leaning towards um, business value, um, valuation, brand valuation, um, just everything ROI related, and um, uh, really demonstrating how marketing can um, contribute to the bottom line and the top line. Um, so that's definitely a red thread for me. Brilliant. Um, and I think speaking to somebody that's gotten from a finance and accounting background into marketing is, is a first for me, but I think also it's going to be pretty interesting and probably is one of the reasons why we're going to be speaking specifically around marketing, um, grasping the metal when it comes to revenue generation. Uh, I think this is something which um, is a bit of a perennial sort of like hot topic uh, within the marketing industry. But I think it'll be interesting to get your perspective given the where you've come from. And I think I'll also pick up on some of the other sort of things that you spoke about there. But to kick things off, um, we'd like to do this with a, a provocative truth. Um, and that's that B2B marketers by and large, obviously, necessary caveat, are still too scared to put their reputation on the line when it comes to revenue generation. Is that something you agree with? I definitely agree with that. Um, and a lot of the time, I believe that that's because we tend to live in a world of MQLs and SQLs, uh, and it's all whole numbers. Um, and we don't do enough to attribute revenue to those leads. Um, and where, what I would always say to um, B2B marketers is that we should be, for, for the stakeholders and particularly other senior leadership team members, um, your sales team and your board in particular, you always want to be attributing marketing efforts to the revenue output. Um, and I don't think that happens enough. And it's as simple as, you know, looking at the number of uh, MQLs that you're bringing in, um, looking at your conversion rates to actual customers, looking at what the revenue attribution is amongst those co customers, um, and then providing what that timeline to revenue is so that when you're sitting in front of a leadership team, sitting in front of your board, you're able to say, 
look, I have 500 MQLs, but here's what that means in money. This is what it means mm -hmm. in revenue. And this is what it looks like in a time frame for realizing that revenue. And it is a game changer in terms of credibility um, at the boardroom table, at the leadership team table, at the sales team table um, to be able to do that attribution. And it is an incredibly uh, straightforward um, calculation, but it does require very stringent alignment with the sales team and mm. um, you know, following those customers right through um, their journey. Um, and I don't think there's enough discipline amongst B2B marketers to that. It's essentially a, here's my MQL, here's your SQL, hand off, back up to top of funnel and, and, and start keeping those QLs coming in. So, so what do you think, yeah, what, what do you think is the key reason why marketers aren't getting it right? Because th this is something which, you know, I think has been talked about quite a lot in terms of the fact that marketers need to get a handle on this. You spoke a little bit about in terms of, you know, there's that lack of discipline. You spoke about that sort of lack of sales alignment. But, you know, fundamentally, why do you feel that marketers are still not getting this right when I think they intellectually understand the need to get it right? We're not going to ask for it. Um, mm. It's a top-down approach. The board aren't looking to marketing for this answer. The SLT mm. senior leadership team are not looking to marketing for that answer. They've already made the decision in their minds that marketing are not the revenue-generating arm of the business. They will always look to commercial and sales for that answer. So mm -hmm. it is up to us as marketing to offer that up as part of our reporting structure to um, educate those stakeholders that absolutely marketing is a revenue driver in B2B because it can oftentimes, and uh, you know, I, I run a B2C um, uh, marketing function as well as a B2B marketing function. And all day long, our wider stakeholders absolutely associate marketing with revenue um, driving activity for the B2C, but they don't on the B2B. So I have to make a very purposeful effort to start all my presentations with, here is marketing's attribution to revenue. So that lovely sales pipeline that you see that gets presented by um, the commercial team, here's how much of that is directly attributed to marketing. And it just changes the conversation. Um, so unless we educate those stakeholders that this is what we are um, contributing and delivering, they're never mm. gonna ask us the question. So we need to stop waiting to be asked. Have you found that um, your leadership team was sceptical initially when you presented that um, those that model fundamentally? Certainly, no, not not sceptical. Um, uh, actually, very pleasantly surprised because they had never seen it been presented before, and because the the economics, the calculations for it are so simplified and actually incredibly transparent because. Uh, we built up a very strong relationship between the marketing and sales team before, so there was never um, a, uh, a grappling for ownership of things. Mm. We developed a culture of very much understanding that the shared success and the um, that one and one equals three mentality of sales and marketing working together. Um, so then what we found by doing that is um, sales were very happy as well to um, give the recognition to marketing when a an amazing deal or um, um, an interesting deal or the lion's share of the deal was down to marketing efforts. Um, uh, but that took a lot of work. You know, it took many, many months of kind of cross-pollination of um, 
sharing the efforts, sharing the outcomes, because, you know, sales are very numbers driven, very revenue driven. Um, so if you talk to them in their language as well, they then can see the value that marketing are bringing. Um, mm. And it does. It's unfortunate. Uh, I've definitely found that um, marketing do have to go that bit further and meet the people where they are. Um, you know, in a utopia, um, you'd meet each other halfway. Um, but I don't think we can afford to wait for that utopia. Um, so by us going further and, and starting the conversation and the positioning of everything marketing do around that revenue conversation, um, it's it's just a different situation. Um, but, you know, they want to see the numbers. They want to see the proof. So if you can track back revenue attribution to your SQLs to your MQLs, um, then there's no, uh, there's no hesitation in absolutely accepting what we're doing is very real. Did you find there were any points of contention with sales in terms of where the, the responsibility and therefore the attribution um, might lie that you would be able to sort of, well, our, view, our listeners might be able to relate to from their own conversations? Definitely in the early days. Um, there absolutely mm. is. Um, and particularly challenging around anything that isn't... Um, directly measurable and attributable to attributable to market to revenue um, and particularly top of funnel and brand awareness pieces. Um, there is no doubt. And I think conceptually um, salespeople and leadership team and board members know that um, at the end of the day, if a brand isn't out there and it isn't known, um, it's going to be difficult for a salesperson to pick up the phone and have a meaningful conversation mm. if they're doing hardcore outbound sales. But trying to actually prove that using numbers, which is generally where you find um, that is the most important or the most powerful piece of um, uh, any demonstration of value is when you can put mm. numbers beside it. And as we know, um, that's much harder from a brand awareness perspective and a lead influence perspective, because obviously once we hand over those leads to a sales team, we continue the efforts to make sure that we're bolstering and influencing those leads along the way. And that is a very challenging thing to, um, to demonstrate and prove value on. And I'd like to pick up on the talking about how you can go about sort of quantifying the value of, of brands. I think it's a really, really interesting topic. And I'd love to get your perspective specifically, given you come from that, that finance accounting background. But just before we do, and I'm, I'm just almost trying to sort of see in practical terms how you can go from a, a point where you, you're not having any of this sort of like attribution. You're not trying to communicate what an MQL actually sort of like translates to to the point where you have all of that visibility. And I would imagine that for some marketers out there, um, because they don't have those data points, then that almost becomes a sort of a barrier to getting started in terms of to be able to say, well, if I've got 500 MQLs, this is what it's going to translate to in terms of revenue. When you started that process, or if you could imagine starting that process without the data, do you think that it's just important just to get something down with some sort of solid assumptions in just so you can actually start to show how X translates to, to Y. Absolutely. And uh, one area I found definitely helped us, we launched this uh, B2B brand uh, about a year and a half ago. And there, so it was very much building the um, uh, marketing function, not from scratch, but um, certainly the sophistication around technologies and measurement um, was very new. So we didn't have the data to be able to prove um, what would work in the early days. So it was very much having to take that strategy and explain it in a way um, 
that would allow those assumptions to to ring true. Um, and that B2B buying behavior of 95% of your um, total addressable market um, being out of market versus 5% being in market was yes. a concept that was very universal. Um, and I found that stakeholders were able to understand that. So then explaining how uh, we use certain strategies to go after that 95% that were out of market versus how we we're going after that in market set of buyers um, helps to orientate our um, efforts and what our campaigns were looking to achieve. So when we broke it down to say, look, this um, this cohort who um, are out of market, what we're looking to do is just make sure that our brand gets in front of them so that when they do go in market, that we are at least um, top of mind and have a, a better propensity to be shortlisted um, when they get into research mode. Um, that concept wrong rang really true with our stakeholders. So then when we were saying, look, we're not right now, we're influencing these leads, they're consuming a lot of top of funnel content, but that's okay because that's just showing us that they're probably out of market. That mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. gave a lot of credibility to why we were doing what we were doing and answer the question as to why are these not turning into SQLs? And we were mm -hmm. able to say, well, look, it's because they're not ready. And here's why they're out of market. Um, so that went a long way for us to buy us the time to build up the data to then start bringing in those MQLs that went to SQLs and then went um, into uh, revenue realizing customers. And because once that data was available, it was very then easy to plug in that revenue attribution to marketing piece. Um, so bringing people on that journey uh, was incredibly important for us. And did you go as far as when you were um, you know, presenting your plans in terms of doing that very top of funnel brand awareness type activity, presenting the plans to, to get the budget? Did you go as far as, and I appreciate there would have been a huge amount of assumption based in this, but to model what that might mean in terms of revenue in a, a sort of a, a six to 18 months sort of horizon? We didn't. Um, mm. We didn't at the time. And a big reason for that is um, uh, several months after we launched our B2B uh, brand, uh, we hit 2022, which was an incredibly turbulent year for all things uh, fintech, which is the industry that mm. we're in. Um, so we had to take a, a very short term um, view on the world, um, in particular because we were um, gearing ourselves to go out uh, and do some fundraising. Um, so what that meant was we had to consider, right, how do we um, show sh uh, green shoots and proof points immediately um, mm -hmm. so that we can get in front of those uh, investors and give them something compelling to work towards. Um, and at the time, that was much more important as a story to tell um, than it was to talk about what 18 months and 24 months would look like. Um, now, you can't do one without the other. Um, mm -hmm. And this is another area I feel B2B marketers um, often don't set themselves up for success is the work that you do today um, is your revenue, is your SQL pipeline and your revenue pipeline yeah. oftentimes in 18 and 24 months because of that in-market, out-of-market concept. Um, and I, I do think over the long term, B2B marketers do tend to uh, focus too much on the short term uh, lead generation cycle um, rather than thinking about long-term demand gen. Um, but look, it, it all depends on what is your objective for that quarter, for that year. For us last year, it was very much how do we create 
how do we demonstrate green shoots, um, show that we are able to bring in customers um, and bring in leads, convert them, onboard them, activate them and start realizing revenue. So what did that mean for me and my team? It meant that we focused much more heavily on that 5% in market, for focus much more heavily on bottom of the funnel content, mm -hmm. um, everything that we knew that would get us uh, quick results. And I, I, I said earlier that I'd be really interested to know how you go about sort of, I suppose, quantifying the value of um, brand. And that's what we were talking about there in terms of a lot of B2B marketers, their temptation is just to go for that short term activation piece rather than invest in the longer term brand building and therefore the, the demand gen. Um, clearly, there is an intangibility to that longer term brand sort of um, efforts. But I'm fascinated as a I don't know whether you would say as an accountant or as a former accountant, but somebody with an accountancy background, how do you go about um, both measuring and valuing brand within a B2B context specifically? Well, there's, there's two levels because obviously um, the, the ultimate goal is actually brand um, valuation. And mm. um, a lot of the um, difference in um uh, companies' valuations does tend to be related to brand, as we know, and e-listed companies. And what is that made up of? It's made up of relevance and familiarity. Um, so these are the measures, these are the proven um, uh, economic metrics that make up that additional valuation in a company. Um, so what do we focus on? Familiarity and uh, uh, relevancy. And how do you do that? Uh, and how do you measure that? Well, it's that's impressions. Um, that's engagement. Um, it's all of those metrics that we as marketers um, already work and measure it. The problem is what we don't do for the stakeholders is um, underpin that with its re its relevance to familiarity and relevance in brand valuation. Um, so if you storytell that, all of a sudden when your stakeholders are being presented with um, engagement and impression uh, metrics, it has far more meaning than if you just provide them in isolation. Um, so that's where I anchor that in particular. Um, and, and that's in particular for a board and senior leadership team level. Um, that resonates, right? Because it's about shareholder value, um, uh, which were, um, which is obviously the um, ultimate goal as a company. Um, and then for more internal stakeholders, particularly when we're looking at um, uh, top line and revenue and uh, for sales teams in particular um, then what we're then the conversation and storytelling is around look this familiarity these impressions these are engagements these are warming up the audience and the market so that when you guys pick up a call pick up the phone or send an email um, it's not going to be as cold as it would have been otherwise mm -hmm. so it's bringing all of these things so you're using the same marketing metrics that we, we you would expect to use, which is engagement, impressions, all of these uh, typical brand uh, awareness metrics. But you're shaping them and explaining them in a way that resonates with the, the stakeholder that you're you're looking to get buy-in from. Um, so they're the two areas of, of example that I'd use there. And do you ever, or have you ever, sort of explored you know, presenting sort of the brand value back in a, an actual sort of dollar valuation basis um or do you feel that actually that is too abstract to really be have meaning in terms of communicating with with stakeholders 
not abstract, but it's about the credibility and the authority of mm. where that value is get, is coming from. Um, you know, mm. there are ISO um, certified um, brand finance companies out there that will actually yes. do that measurement for you, which is excellent. But you have to then make the decision as whether the cost of that measurement and, and having that done for you um, is going to justify the, the level of comfort. Do your stakeholders need it to be um, uh, quantified and verified um, mm. at this stage. Now, it's a very different thing if you're actually getting to a liquidity event or dealing with investors and you really want to amplify your company valuation, then it's a probably um, a smart investment to make to engage one of these um, certified uh, brand valuation companies. But other than that, I think it, it I have found that it generally does suffice um, to be able to explain the rationale as what to brand awareness campaigns and spend mm. is doing um, and uh, not investing any further than that. Now, in saying that, Ben, I would all day long, if I had the budget, um, would love to have those valuations done and on a regular basis so we could truly yeah. measure the, the business valuation being created. Um, but uh, unfortunately, that is definitely a, a very nice to have. <laughs> And cost prohibitive, like you said, yes. but it, it is, it is, it's a shame. And look, I, I, this is way beyond the scope of, of this call for us to work it out. But like, it, it's a shame that there isn't a more repeatable and, and reliable model that you can apply to actually sort of track how that brand value is growing. I mean, yes, you can track how brand awareness is increasing. You can track how brand relevance um, is sort of improving. But again, ultimately, that is a proxy mm. for actually the strength of of the business so it, it would be a very interesting exercise at some point to really sort of like think about that it'll be interesting and the problem is because you mm. can do that obviously for publicly listed companies because mm. it's the difference between the book value and the market value yeah. of the company yeah. it's where it's a challenge for um privately listed companies Private. which mm. we are and most companies and businesses are um mm. But they'd rather be privately listed than publicly listed and, and would forego that that easily um, measurable brand valuation mm. and, and, and stay out of the, um, the listed realm. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, to keep on the subject of, of brand um, and, you know, a key part of building a brand is to be building that sort of mental availability. You'd build mental availability by engaging with people on sort of that emotional level. Um, I'm really, really interested in t to get your answer to what is our house question, um, which was when was the last time that you saw a piece of marketing, piece of advertising, you know, any, any form of sort of creative communication that you really sort of felt in your guts that moved you on that deep emotional level? This, I think, is a really, really fabulous question. And um, what came to mind immediately when I read that question, Ben, was, um, I don't know if you've come across the Brazilian artist, uh, I think Nelly Azevedo, I, I want to say that that's how you pronounce her name. Um, but Nelly is the person, the artist behind the um, the thousand figures uh, made out of ice that were, uh, I think the first time she'd done it, were placed on... Um, uh, the steps of the concert hall in Berlin and it was yeah, uh, a campaign that, yes. around mm. um, you know wildlife funds warning around um, sea levels um, now that was obviously uh, an incredibly powerful one but what was really what I found really interesting about that is she's used that concept 
concept elsewhere. So that isn't its only message. So um, there was another time it was used in Belfast, actually, um, around a Queen's University, I want to say it was. And it was actually uh, more of a um, um, remem remembrance of the um, victims of the Titanic. Um, and talked around that piece of it. Um, so what I found really powerful is that you had this this concept and this campaign that can be molded to, because um, it's all about time, right? And it's all about wasting time and the urgency and what that does. And I found that incredibly emotive because anybody there, they're not necessarily thinking about the Titanic or rising sea levels. To them, seeing time go by very quickly, creating a sense of urgency in your, in your gut almost feeling that sense of panic for whatever it is in your life that you're, is going on, that you're thinking, oh crap, I, I, you know, I need to get on with something. I just thought that was incredibly yeah. powerful. Now, and I, and I had that feeling just seeing it online. I can't imagine what it is to sit there in person and watch those figurines melt. Yeah. Um, very, very powerful. Um, okay. Well, I, I was about to say, I mean, the, the medium is, it's a great medium to use. And also I think it's, it's that, the, the physical aspect to it, which I think would be so powerful. But as you said, I mean, it's uh, still just the sort of the concept of it is, is very strong and translates, mm. um, you know, even within an online environment. Um, I mean, that's a really nice, that's a really nice one to, to, to have shared, actually. I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Uh, but if I can just sort of think back to sort of the, the overall conversation, and it's been very detailed, very instructive, to be honest. I think there's probably a lot of practical sort of takeaways. But probably what strikes me is that, that it's, it is important to make sure that you are getting to sort of numerical values to be able to communicate the value to stakeholders. Absolutely. But that has to be done with a little bit of a more intuitive explanation of why things are important. And as you talked about, this whole sort of idea that you only have 5% um, of your addressable market in market any one time, and actually 95% of those people <laughs> are not ready to buy, that just makes so much sense in terms of, well, we have to reach, we have to speak to them in preparation uh, yeah. for the future. And again, that sort of like idea of, if you are going to pick up the phone, how much of an advantage it will be if they already have an awareness of you, an understanding of your services, and they have some positive sentiment. So I think it's all about the quantitative, but also just that sort of human sort of qualitative um, explanation as well. So Andrea, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very, very much for, for coming on the podcast. And uh, I, as I said, it's uh, the first time I've spoken to someone who is from a finance and accountancy background, but um, it definitely didn't disappoint in terms of giving us a different way and a nice structured way of, of looking at things. I appreciate that. Thanks, Ben. B2B Marketing, The Provocative Truth is brought to you by Allen Agency. To find out more, head to allen-agency.com. You can stream B2B Marketing, The Provocative Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else great podcasts are found. And don't forget to click subscribe to ensure you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Allen, thanks for listening.